Uh, but today, I'm, I'm excited to be able to share God's Word, and the, the title of my message today is All Hands on Deck. Now, this is a, uh, it, it's a nautical phrase. It comes from the world of ships and boats. Uh, all hands on deck comes from the idea where uh, there's a whole bunch of sailors on a boat, and if there is a problem, some sort of emergency on the ship, the captain will call out, all hands on deck, and then everyone needs to come running to the deck and be ready to jump in and do whatever is necessary. Now, I, I like this title, and uh, I can't help but always bring up nautical uh, images whenever I preach. Um, I've been in full-time Christian ministry for 25 years now as a pastor and as a missionary, but before I was in ministry, I was a ship captain. Really, it's not a joke. I really was. It's like a weird uh, career path, I know. But I worked on ships and boats and yachts for many years before going into ministry. And then during my first several years of ministry, uh, I also worked as a captain. So I can't help every time I read Scripture. I'm always seeing nautical imagery. And I love that all the disciples were boat people. They were fishermen. They're, they're my people. So, But uh, I, I like this idea of all hands on deck because I think it will it, bring us a good image of what we're going to be talking about today. And I wanted to share, this, this is not just an absolute concept. This actually happened to me once, actually when I was very early on working on boats. I started my first job on a ship when I was 15 years old as a deckhand. And a deckhand on a boat is like the lowest job on the ship. It's where everyone starts, and you're the guy that scrubs the deck and cleans the toilets and brings the captain coffee when he wants it. It's a very low job, but there's a lot of deckhands to make a, a boat operate. And so when the boat is out at sea or on a cruise, there's deckhands all over the boat doing all kinds of different jobs and things. And I remember one day I was on a cruise, I was only about 15 15 years old, and I, had, I was down in the engine room of the ship checking some dials or something, and we had these little radios, and I remember I got this alarm, this beep, and it said, all hands on deck. And I was like, I think I know what that means. I think I've seen a movie or something before, you know? So I, I dropped what I was doing, and I ran up to the top deck where the captain was, and, and all of my fellow deckhands were all running at the same time, and we all sort of met up there on the top deck of the ship. And the captain came out with a very serious look on his face and said, there's a boat just over there that is caught on fire, and we need to go help them out. And I was like, awesome, this is cool. Not because the boat was on fire, but we get to actually like practice what we've been, you know, doing. And so the captain all of a sudden started barking out, okay, you guys get the fire hose. You guys get the lifeboats ready. You guys get uh, life preservers out. He started giving everyone instructions. And all of a sudden this crew of deckhands, there was about eight of us, we all jumped into action, all doing our different jobs. And so as we approached the ship, you could see it, it really was on fire. We get close to there and everyone is, is doing their part. And, and I was on the, uh, the fire hose. And so I got to be there and we get close to the ship, we start spraying it with water, and, and praise God, it all worked out. The fire got put out, everyone was safe, no one got hurt, and, and it all worked out well. But the only reason it all worked out is because when that call rang out, all hands on deck, everyone came running. And I wanted to start with that because I think it's a great image of what we see in our Bible story today, and I want to see what this means for us in our life. Now, we're going to be looking today in the book of Exodus, chapter 17. Now, before we jump into the text, I actually, um, I'm going to call up a, uh, a volunteer to help me. He's actually kind of a voluntold because I asked him. So I'm going to ask Abina. He has no idea why I'm calling him up here, but I said, I'm going to call you up on stage, so don't pretend like you don't hear me when I call you. So Abina, I want you to come up here on stage. Now, we're going to be looking at this uh, Old Testament story in the book of Exodus, 
chapter 17, and we're going to see this really interesting thing that happens. And so Abina is going to help us understand what's going on here. So uh, you're going to take this stick, and uh, it's not real heavy. You can feel it. I'm not about to unkilo, no? I don't know. no. So what I want you to do, Abina, is just hold it over your head. And dizzy. Just, just hold it like this. You don't have to do anything. Just hold it over your head. Can you do that? Easy, yeah. He says it's easy. Kalalno. Okay. Now, I'm going to be watching. You got it. Uh, 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 up a little bit. Uh, back up. Back up. Okay. Not through the entire sermon. No, no. Not the whole sermon. We'll, we'll see how long you can go. Okay? So you just hold it right there. You good? Abana, you good? He's one of our elders, so I can pick on him. So, uh, all right. Now, as Abina's over here, I want you to uh, bring your, your mind back to Exodus chapter 17 now, and I want you to kind of uh, understand the context of what's going on in this passage uh, in the book of Exodus. So right now, what's happening is this is when the nation of Israel had just been set free from Egypt. It spent 400 years in captivity in Egypt, and finally, through the plagues and uh, these miracles, God sets them free, and, and the people of Israel now leave Egypt. But God has promised to take them to the promised land, but before they go there, they're going to end up having to spend about 40 years wandering around in the desert. Now, you'd think they'd be really uh, excited, but in fact, uh, they'd just been set free. But the whole time, Israel's grumbling and complaining and whining. But in spite of that, God is so gracious to them. And he provides for them. They're hungry, so he provides manna from heaven. Literally, bread appears on the ground uh, in the morning. And, and they're thirsty. So earlier in Exodus chapter 17, Moses takes his staff and he strikes a rock, and fresh water comes out of the rock. And so we see the people complaining and grumbling, but we also see that God has a plan for his people. He's taking them someplace, and he wants to bless them, and he wants to grow them. He wants to build his kingdom through them. But there's a problem. And the problem is that Israel has enemies as well. Abina, you okay? Check it at him. So the problem is that, that God wants to bless his people, but there's also these other nations that don't want to bless Israel. They want to conquer Israel. And so other nations are always out to get them. They, they're against them. And so as you look at the Old Testament, what you discover is the whole uh, story is filled with Israel constantly being in battles, constantly having other nations coming to attack them and to try to take them out. But what's significant about this story today is this is actually the first battle of the nation of Israel in the whole Bible. This is the first time another nation comes to attack Israel. Now you might say, well, they were held captive by Egypt, and that's true, but they went into captivity sort of slowly over time. It wasn't through a fight. So this is now the first time that a, a nation has formally come against to attack Israel. And that's where our story picks up in Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8. It simply says this, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. So the story begins very simply. It says the Israelites are there at this place, Rephidim, somewhere on the Sinai Peninsula, and it says that the Amalekites came to attack them. Now, who are these Amalekites? They, they might sound familiar. The Amalekites are the descendants of Esau. Now, now who was Esau? If you remember, the, the first patriarch was Abraham, and Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau, right? Like, like Bill and Joe Harding, twin sons, right? I'm not sure which is the good one in that. But, but uh, you know, Jacob was actually kind of a Tanish Ashtagadi. He was a little bit of a troublemaker, and he steals the birthright from his brother. And so uh, Jacob's 12 sons go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel, but Esau's sons go on to become the enemies of Israel. Did 
Come on, Ishi. Quick, quick, quick. You, you can. Gemash Bicha? Ishi, okay. We'll see. You chill out? He said it was easy. Remember, two minutes ago, it's easy. Okay. So now you have the, the historic enemies, uh, distant cousins of Israel, coming to attack them. And it's a very scary time. Now, uh, again, the, uh, the Israelites had never faced a battle before. And these Amalekites were a, a brutal, violent people, we're told. And so they come to attack Israel, and here's what we read uh, in the next verse. It says, Now Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. And tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Moses says, okay, here's what we're going to do. He, he finds this young man, Joshua, and he says, Joshua, I want you to go and form an army. Now, this is significant for two reasons. One, this is the first time we meet Joshua, first time he's mentioned in the Bible. He would go on to become a very important person. We're meeting him for the first time. And also, notice what he had to tell Joshua to do. He said, go form an army. Because at this point, remember, Israel had never fought anyone before, so they didn't have an army. So there wasn't a standing army there, so Joshua had to figure out really quickly, how am I going to get a bunch of soldiers together? Uh, so that's what, what Joshua is called to do. And Moses says, well, while you're doing that, I'm going to do something different. Uh, now Moses was an old man at this point, probably 80 or so. And he says, I I'm too old to fight, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go up on the hill with my staff... And I'm going to hold it up in the air. Now, this seems like maybe a, a bit of a, a strange thing for Moses to do. Why would Moses take a stick and go up on the hill and hold it over his head while this battle's going on? Well, see, the reason why is because this wasn't just an ordinary stick, right? This was the staff of Moses. This represented the power and the presence of God. This was the same staff that Moses used to do miracles in front of Pharaoh to instill fear in his heart. It was the same staff that Moses had used a little while earlier to touch the Red Sea and it parted. It was the same staff that earlier in this chapter he had struck a rock and water came out of it. So this isn't just some ordinary stick he's holding up. This is the, the staff of God. And again, it represents the power and the presence of God in their midst. And here's what Moses knows. He knows that if this group of untrained soldiers, this new army that was just formed, if they are somehow going to defeat the Amalekites, they can't do it on their own. They need God's presence and God's power. So he says, the best thing I can do is I'm going to go up on the hill and I'm going to hold up this stick over the army. And so that's just what Joshua does. We read in verse 10. It says, so Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held his hands up high, up high... As long as they did that, Israel was winning. But whenever he let his hands down, the Amalekites were winning. Now, I want you to think about this. Abina here is a, is a young man, strong young man here. Moses was 80 years old. Now, 
you've seen how hard it is to hold the stick. You might think, oh, I could do it. You can come try after the service if you want, see how long you can hold it up. It's very difficult. And so imagine what, what Moses, this task he has in front of him, this very difficult task, and, 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 and they're watching, and what's happening is, is and whenever he's, he's held up high, they're winning, but when it gets down low, they, the battle starts to go the other way. Now, I want you to notice here, it says that Moses brought some people up with him. It says, Aaron and Hur went with Moses to the top of the hill. Now, Aaron is Moses' brother, and so that kind of made sense. And Aaron would go on to become the high priest of Israel. He's a pretty important person. But then there's this guy named Hur. Nobody's ever heard of him. He's never been mentioned before in Scripture. He's only mentioned like one other time after this in a genealogy. He's a nobody. So in the story, you have these really important people. You've got Moses and Joshua and Aaron, these big figures. And then there's this nobody, this, this unimportant, seemingly unknown person named Her, who has somehow been called into the mix. And so they go up on the hill, and they are, they are watching this. And after a while, Aaron and Hur are just there observing apparently, but they start to observe this dynamic that, that every time Moses gets tired and his hands go down, that they start to lose. And so Aaron and Hur say, we've got to do something about this. We've got to help him out because we don't want to lose this. And so at some point they see this and Aaron and Hur decide to step in. So they're gracious to Moses. And so here's what we read in verse 12. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. And so I want you to think about this. Koi, not quite done yet. So they, they're watching him, and they go and they grab a stone, Here's our big stone here, and they say, you poor old man Moses, here, please come, come sit down, and he sits down on the stone, and then I need a, an Aaron come up here, I'll, I'll pick on my son Luke to come up here and be Aaron, you, you got to keep those hands up, come on, all the way up, right? And so he's holding it up, but now he's not doing it by himself, because it, now we have Aaron on one side, go ahead Luke, hold up his hand, and then her on the other side, and they hold his hands up until sunset. Now how is this, Abina? Is this a little better? Now it's easy. And so how does the verse end? What's the last thing it says? And so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Amen? Is she? Okay, thank you, Bina. You can be released now. I'm sorry. You can skip your workout now tonight. So, so this is a very uh, unique story that, that, that plays out here. They're watching, and, and poor Moses is up there with this staff, this poor old man, holding it for hours, it seems. Now think about that, for hours. And you realize he, he can't do it on its own. He, he couldn't do it in his own strength and power. And so Aaron and her, Aaron kind of a well-known guy, but her, this nobody, this no-name, he steps in and he helps out, and it turns the tide of the battle. Now, there's a lot going on in the story, a lot we could talk about. I think one of the, the coolest things we see in the story, it's this great reminder that the real power in any battle is never our own. It's always the power of God. The victory, what brought victory to the battle was not Moses or even an Aaron and her. It was ultimately the power of God represented in his staff. We need to remind that in our own lives. The only thing that ever really brings victory is the power and the presence of God. And so we always need to be continually turning to Him. 
But here's the part of the story I kind of want to just focus in on here for the next few minutes. And it's really about Aaron and her and what they did for him. And specifically, I want to look at her because he kind of seems like he's the odd man out in this story. He's the guy that doesn't really fit, it seems, into the story. Again, you have Moses and Joshua and Aaron, and these are the, the, the leadership class of the nation of Israel. So it kind of makes sense they're there. But then there's her, just an average guy, nobody special. But when he saw there was a need, he stepped up and he got involved. Now you might think, well, what's the big deal here? All he did was hold up some old guy's hand for a few hours. Like, really, what's the significance of that? Well, the reason why I want to look at her is because I think he sets an incredible example for us of the type of attitude, the type of servant's heart that God wants all of his people to have. You see, the call rang out, all hands on deck. And Aaron and her could have sort of just said, well, I bet somebody else will probably help him out. But they didn't do that. He jumped in and he started serving. And because of that, God gave them a victory. You see, I, I love the story because I think it's a, it's a good picture for us that we often forget about battle. We forget that all of us right now are engaged in a battle. Now, I'm not talking about earthly, political, geopolitical battles, although those are raging all around us, even here in our own nation. But I'm talking about a far more significant battle. That is the spiritual battle that every follower of Jesus is engaged in, whether you know it or recognize it or live like it or not. You are engaged in an internal cosmic battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Between the kingdom of lies and death and the kingdom of truth and life. That's what the Bible says. It is a reality that every one of us is engaged in this battle and it is raging all around us. You see, God is at work in this world. He's at work in Ethiopia. He's at work in whatever nation you come from. He's at work everywhere. What he's trying to do all over the world, he is trying to draw men and women and children to himself. He's trying to provide salvation and sanctification to those people he draws to himself. He's trying to empower them to go and to uh, be disciples and to make an impact in the community around them. God is seeking not just to bring salvation, but to bring uh, peace and healing and hope and light to a broken world. God is trying to defeat the darkness that Satan, the enemy, is trying to bring in here. There is this battle going on, and it is all around us. And the way he wages that battle is through you and me. Think about that. Yes, there are angels and demons and they're all over the place, but God says he is carrying out his work in this world primarily through us, his people, his church. So think about what that means. That means that IEC, this church, whatever church you come from, but this church, God has designed it to take part in this battle, in this spiritual warfare that is going on. And all of us are called to be engaged in it. You see, we need to remember that. So I love these battle stories in the Old Testament because so often in our modern everyday life, we just get caught up in our own stuff. We get caught up in our job and our family and our house and our career and whatever. 
We just get caught up in everyday life and we, we kind of forget it. Or maybe we know it, but it just seems too abstract, too strange or weird, so we kind of just uh, press it down and pretend like it's not there. But when we do that, we are missing out on what God might want to do through us. You see, in the Old Testament, this battle we saw today, this is the first battle of what would be many, many more battles where the enemies of Israel were constantly trying to stop them from moving forward. And the same thing is true here today. We are up to trying to carry out God's work in the world, and we have an enemy who is constantly fighting against us, trying to stop us from moving forward. We have to remember that. And so we need people who, just like her, look around them and they recognize, oh, we're in a battle here, and I don't know what I can do, but here's something small I can do. And they do it, and it makes a difference. See, imagine if Her had seen that. He's up there, and, and he sees this, and he, he says, well, I'm sure somebody else will come along and help out Moses. If he had said, I, I don't, that's kind of weird. I don't want to do that. That might make me uncomfortable. I've got some other things I've got to do. What if he would said, uh, do you know who I am? I'm kind of like overqualified for this. Can't we just get some young person to do this? Or what if the opposite, he had said, I don't think I'm strong enough to do it. I don't think I'm equipped to do it. He could have said a lot of different things, but instead he said, no, I'm going to jump in and get involved. And see, I think there's a lot of people in our churches today that do the same thing. There's a lot of people, they see needs around in the church and the community and their family, and they say, I bet someone else will take care of that. I bet someone else will come along or... Or, I, I don't really have time for that. I mean, oof, i got a lot going on right now. My life's really busy. I'm in this stage of life, and I just don't have time to deal with that. Or maybe they think, ah, I'm kind of a big person. I'm, I'm too important to go down and, and clean at the church or help out with little kids or, or do something like that. Or maybe it's the opposite. They say, I, I'd like to help, but I don't think I'm smart enough or good enough. I'm not qualified. There's all sorts of excuses that we can make to say, I just don't want to get involved but when those things start running through our mind, let me encourage you to remember this example of her. See, as we go forward, now I want to look at just a few things about his, his heart, his attitude. And what I want you to do here in these next few minutes is just compare your own attitude with that of her. I want you to look at a few things about her and his mindset. And as I describe them, I want you to say, is that me or am I really not doing what he models here? Okay, so just be thinking about that in your mind. Here's the first attitude I see in her that I think is really compelling, and that's that he knew that this whole thing wasn't really about him, that life really isn't about him. He understood, hey, this isn't about my glory. This isn't about an opportunity for me to shine. This isn't an opportunity for me to, to get up and, and receive a plaque or an award. This is just, hey, there's a need, and I'm, I'm available, and I'm here, so I'm just going to jump in and do it. He probably knew, in fact, that he wouldn't get any credit for this. I mean, they're up on the hill. No one else can see him, right? And he knows that I'm here with Moses and Aaron and Joshua's down there. They're the people that are going to get written about in the papers tomorrow morning, not me. But he didn't care. He just said, okay, there's a need. I'm here. I'm going to go ahead and jump in and get involved. He understood his role was just to be a servant, to support the work that God was doing. And I love, too, this wasn't a very exciting, fulfilling job for him to stand there for hours holding up Moses' hand. I doubt he was thinking, wow, this is really what I feel gifted and called and passionate about, arm holding, right? I don't think this is my spiritual gift, but, you know, he, he just said, hey, this might not be the most fun thing, but it's a need. 
and so I'm going to do it. You know, have you ever been around people where everything is always about them? You know these kind of people? Where everything in life is really about them and what they are trying to do and what they want and what their goals are and everything sort of always turns back to them. You know these kind of people? I know you know these kind of people. Do you know how I know that? Because it's you and it's me. It's all of us. That's how all of us are. We all naturally make life about us. It's part of our, our broken human nature. We can't help it. Our most natural tendency is to turn the focus to make everything about me, what makes me happy, what makes me feel fulfilled, what's going to bring me joy, what's going to advance my life, my career, my money. It's just how we naturally think. And yet God comes and he offers this radically different perspective on life. And he says, well, in fact, it's not about you at all. Your life is first about God, second about others, and then lastly about you. Think about that. Our first priority is to honor God, to please Him. Then He he commands us to serve and love others. And only then do we think about ourselves. You see, but this is very unnatural. That does not come easy to us. We have to work at that. And so we have to remind ourselves, hey, life is not about me. Serving is not about me. When I was a pastor in America, I remember this very distinctly. There was a guy in our church who had served in this ministry for many years. And it was a very important ministry, and he did a great job at it. And uh, one day he said, hey, pastor, can we go out for coffee? So I went out, and, and we met him. And he said, hey, I want to let you know I'm going to step down from this ministry. I said, really? I said, wow, but you've been doing it so long, and you're so good at it. Like, why do you want to step down? And he said, you know, it's, it's great, but it's, it's just not doing anything for me anymore. Now, I was a good pastor, so I didn't yell, but I wanted to say, I'm sorry, I must have misheard you. I thought you just said it wasn't doing anything for me anymore, and I wanted to just smack him upside the head, because I wanted to say, since when has serving been about you? Since when is it about you finding happiness? That's not why we serve. That comes as a byproduct But our motivation is never for ourselves. It is to serve God and to serve others. And yet that guy's attitude represents what so many of us think. Hey, I'll help out and serve as long as it sort of is fun or satisfying for me. As long as it helps me out somehow, I'll do it. But if not, I'm not really interested. So that's why I love this example of her because he saw this isn't about me. And he jumped in and he got involved anyway. So think about your heart compared to his heart. Here's the next thing I want to see in his heart, and that's this, is that he looked around for the needs, and when he saw them, he just started helping. His eyes were open to what was going on around him, and he saw the need, and he said, okay, I'll jump in, and I'll get involved. Now, remember, think about this whole, how it all started. It started off because Israel's just hanging out there in the desert, and all of a sudden, there's this army coming to attack him. And everyone's kind of running around, and now Moses is saying, okay, Josh, I want you to get an army ready. And it's kind of a chaotic time. It would have been very easy just for anyone, including her, to kind of like step back into the background and just sort of like watch and think, man, I don't don't want to get hurt. There might be some arrows flying around, some, you know, spears being thrown. I'm good. I'm just going to stay back here. But instead, when he saw the frenzy, he didn't sit idly by. He didn't run away. He saw this need, and it wasn't, again, a very glamorous need, 
But he said, here's an opportunity, and I'm going to just start serving. I'm just going to get involved. Now, again, it might have seemed like it was something sort of insignificant or, or trivial, but it was a real need. And so he was willing to step up. And we need to be reminded of this truth that all around us there are real needs every day. Real needs in your family, real needs in this church, real needs in your community, real needs at your workplace. And God wants us as Christians to meaningfully be getting involved in those things, to help out and serve where we can. But too often we're like, uh, I don't know if I want to do that. You see, the Bible gives this image of, of the church as the body of Christ. It's like this body where Jesus is the head, and then you and I are all these various body parts in it. And some of you are hands and feet and eyes and noses and kneecaps and armpits. And I don't know, but we're all different parts of the body, right? And some of those parts are more up front and visible. Some are more behind the scenes. But the whole body is needed for the body to function properly. So imagine if in my body, my, my right hand just decided to stop working one day. I'm, I'm worthless with my left hand. I can't do anything, right? So all of a sudden, I wouldn't be able to function without my right hand. And so my body wouldn't work properly. Well, that's what it's like in the church when some of you who God has gifted and called and prepared say, no, I, I'm not going to do that. It's like the right hand of the body is just hanging there, unable to be used. And what you might not realize is that you're a part of that body whether you know it or not. And so when part of your body isn't working, you suffer as well. So all of us, if you've been called by God, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been given a spiritual gift. You've been given abilities uniquely God has prepared you for a purpose in your life. And you might not always see or understand what that is, but God wants you to use whatever he's given you. And the best way to start to discover that is just to start serving. Just to start saying, hey, there's a need, okay. Uh, we need ushers, okay, I'll try being an usher. Uh, we need help with this, okay, I'll do that. M my neighbor needs some help, okay, I'll do that. Just wherever you see needs, jump in and start serving. No matter, it might not seem like it's very important. You might say, teaching kids Sunday school class, I really don't want to do that. Uh, you know, uh, helping run uh, sound on a Sunday morning, I don't know if I'm really qualified for that. You can make excuses all day long. But the reality is this, God has gifted every one of us, and it takes all of us together as the body to all play our part if we're going to function in a healthy way. And that's what I love about her. He saw the opportunities, he saw the needs, and he just said, I'll, I'll jump in. You see, here's a reality that's true in churches all over the world. I see it back in America, I see it here in Ethiopia. It's a pretty universal principle in churches. Pastors talk about it. They call it the 2080 rule. And that's where about 20% of the church does 80% of the work. It's just a reality. Look around. In any given church you go to, you'll see the same people. Week after week, it's always the same people serving, 20% usually, where 80% of us are very happy just to come, sit. It was a nice service. Sermon went a little long. That's okay, you know, and then we just go on. See, I don't want IEC to be a church like that. I don't want IDC to be a church where 20% of us are doing all the work and 80% are just sitting around as consumers. That's not how God designed the body to work. And when we do that, we are not fully engaged in the battle that God has called us to. So if you're here and you're part of that 20% at IEC, God bless you, thank you, be strong, hang in there. But if you're part of that 80% that just sort of comes and never really gets involved, don't really get involved in your community, don't really try to share the gospel, you don't really try to share or help others. It's just sort of like, 
I come to church on Sunday, that's about it. Let me encourage you, let me challenge you. This is not how God is designed for you to live and you are missing out. So let me encourage you, jump in, get involved. Here's the last thing I want us to see from her. Again, I want you to compare your attitude to his and that's this, is that he saw the big picture. Quite literally, her was up on the mountain and he could see this battle taking place. So he had this very tangible way of seeing, okay, I can see very clearly when Moses' hands are up high, Israel's doing great. But man, when he gets tired and it starts to go down, Israel starts to lose. And so it was very easy for him to see the difference between here and here, right? He could see it tangibly with his eyes. Now, we can't always see tangibly the battle that's going on around us or the ebbs and flows and how it's going but it is going on. And we need to be reminded that even though we can't see it with our physical eyes, there is a battle and we are engaged in it and what I do matters. My choice to either engage in this battle or sit idly by, it matters. Because I'm part of something much bigger than myself. Imagine if we went through life and we could actually see the spiritual battle going on all around us. And we could see moment by moment how our actions affected it. It really changed how we lived our life, right? Now, most of us uh, won't have that. It happens a couple times with a few people in the Bible really interestingly. But for the most part, we don't get to see that. But we need to remind ourselves of, that even though I, I can't see it, I know that there's a battle. And I know that I'm a part of it. And I know that what I do or don't do matters. Now, for most of us, when we engage in service, we can't really see the fruit of it. We don't know what's going to happen. We, it might be easy to think, is this really making any difference? Is this actually helping anyone or really doing anything? We don't often see it. And that's when we have to remind ourselves by faith, hey, I'm just going to do my part. I'm going to stand here and hold up this old guy's arms. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust God. One of my favorite stories uh, is about a guy you've probably never heard of. His name is Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a, a, a shoe salesman in America in Boston, Massachusetts in the 1850s. And Ed Kimball was kind of a nobody. Wasn't educated, wasn't wealthy, didn't come from an important family. He worked in a shoe store, which wasn't a very glamorous job. So he was just kind of a normal guy, but one day he met Jesus he found salvation, and it radically changed his life. And he said, I want to make a difference for Jesus with my life, but what can I do? I work in a shoe store. So he went to his pastor at his church, and he said, hey, I want to I jump in and serve. What can I do to help? And the pastor said, well, um, well the, we have this group of teenage boys, and they're kind of difficult. Right? They're, they're kind of rowdy, they're, they're messy, they're, they cause problems, and, you know, like five teachers have started and quit. That's where we need the help. And Ed Kimball said, Becca, I'll do it. Sign me up. He said, I've never taught a Bible study before, but I, I'll, I'll teach this class. And so Ed Kimball started faithfully teaching this group of teenage boys every Sunday, week after week. And it's hard. Teenage boys are difficult. I have two teenage sons at home right now. I know it is difficult. They're, they're punks sometimes, Right? But, I love my kids, but, but uh, Ed was there teaching these boys week in and week out. Well, at his shoe store, there was a young teenage boy named Dwight that worked with him there. And Ed said, I want to try to reach out to this kid, Dwight. Now, Dwight 
did not go to church. He came from a very anti-religious sort of a worldview. He wanted nothing to do with God. Very anti-church. He thought it was all bogus, a waste of time. He's a young man. He no interest at all. But Ed kept saying, hey, why don't you come and well, can I share with you or teach you this? And, and over and over again, Dwight said, not interested, not interested. No, stop, leave me alone. But Ed just kept after him. And after a while, Dwight finally agreed. He said, okay, stop pestering me. I'll, I'll come to your Sunday school class some Sunday morning. So Dwight shows up to the Sunday school class. And he actually sort of liked it. So he started coming back. And over about a two-year period, Dwight eventually came to put his faith in Jesus Christ. And Ed Kimball was just so happy and so overwhelmed with joy that, that this young man uh, who was against God came and put his faith in Jesus. But that's not where the story ends. What I love about that story is that young man, Dwight, went on to become one of the greatest evangelists in the history of America. His name was Dwight L. Moody. If you might know that name, that D.L. Moody traveled around, preached to hundreds of thousands of people, and literally tens of thousands of people came to faith in Christ through Dwight L. Moody's ministry made a huge impact all over America. And then as he got older in his life, Dwight realized one of the things that's needed in this country is good Bible training, good Bible teaching. There's a lack of education for people who want to go and serve in ministry. So he decided to start a Bible institute. And it went on to be called the Moody Bible Institute, which has now trained thousands of pastors and missionaries all over the world, including me. I'm a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute. You see, I love this story because it all started with this shoe salesman named Ed that was a no one. But he said, I just have a heart to serve God, and so I'm going to jump in, and, and here's what I've got. I've got time, and I can talk with this kid, and so I'm going to share Jesus with him. And it made an impact in his life, and now for generations, that legacy has lived on. So when you jump in and serve, who knows what God might do in and through you. You might not see it. You might serve for years in Sunday school and think, have I made any difference? And who knows what one of those children might grow up to be. Because God is all powerful and he's always at work all around us. And he calls us to jump in and to get involved. And so my challenge for you as we, as we think about this is to continue to remember that you are in a battle. And here's my question for you. How are you engaged in that battle? What are you doing? Are you sitting, sitting casually by in the sidelines? Or are you involved doing your part? And your part might seem like a big important deal or might seem like something silly like holding up a stick. The truth is it doesn't really matter because God wins the victory. But he wants all of us, he wants all of us, whoop, that was almost dangerous there, break the piano, to jump in. It's an all-hands-on-deck moment where God is calling all of us. I want to challenge you that each one of you has been given gifts and abilities by God, and he wants you to use them to engage in this battle. Now let me end today with the way this passage ends, to kind of bring it all together. Because the passage ends with one more short verse at the end in Exodus chapter 17, verse 15. The, after the battle is won, Moses goes over and it says he makes an altar. And here's what it says in verse 15. Uh, Moses made an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner. 
He said, because hands were lifted against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Moses makes this altar and he calls it, the Lord is my banner. A banner here is like a, like a battle flag. That's what it represents. It's the battle flag under which the victory was accomplished. See, Moses was recognizing that, hey, this wasn't really about me. This was about God. He's the one that won the battle, and this victory happened under him. The Lord is our banner. It is his flag flying over this victory on the battlefield, not ours. And so notice that Moses doesn't call that battle flag the banner of Israel. He doesn't name it after his nation. He doesn't say, this is the banner of Moses or of Joshua or even or Aaron or her. No, he says, this is the Lord's banner. He is the one who gave us the victory. It is only under him that we can find victory. Brother and sister, we need to remember that. Do not engage in spiritual battle in your own might, in your own power. You will always fail. You only fight under the battle of the Lord. And this is especially true, maybe most importantly true for some of you here today, as you fight your greatest spiritual battle, your greatest spiritual need, which is for salvation. The only way you will find salvation from your sin is under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you sit under the banner of your own name and your own good deeds and your own works, if you sit under the banner of your family, if you sit under the banner of your nation or your tribe, if you sit under the banner of this church, you won't find salvation. There is only one banner under which we find salvation, and that is the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he has already won the victory. We don't have to watch like Aaron and her did saying, gosh, I hope the battle goes okay. I hope they're going to win. Jesus already won the battle on the cross 2,000 years ago when he died and rose again. The victory has been won. Salvation has been accomplished. It has been offered to every single one of you. But it doesn't happen automatically. You have to choose to live under that battle flag of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And if you're here today and if you think about your own salvation, you think, well, I'm trusting in myself, in my, my religious deeds, or I'm trusting in my family, they're really good people, or I'm trusting in my, my nation or my church, or somehow I've got God's favor in my life through, through something else, you're deceiving yourself. The Bible says there's only one way to find salvation, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He is the only source of victory over sin and death it was the banner of the Lord that gave victory to Moses thousands of years ago, and it's the banner of the Lord today that can give you victory over sin in your life. If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus for your salvation, we would love to talk to you about that. We'd love to explain to you how you can do that. So if that's you, please come talk to us after the service today. Let's end in prayer. Our God in heaven, we are so grateful uh, for the reality that you have already won the battle that we are engaged in this cosmic battle, but we know that the victory is sure. The outcome is already established. It was established when you conquered sin and death on the cross. And so we thank you for that. Thank you for the hope we can have that is not based in ourselves, in our good deeds, in our religious heritage, or our ethnic identity, our hope that is only found in you, Lord Jesus. 
And so I pray for anyone here today that has not yet met you as their Savior. God, would you open up their heart to your truth? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you help them to experience your salvation today? And Lord, I pray for anyone here who has trusted in you. I pray for every brother and sister in Christ here, every believer. God, would you remind them that though the victory has been won, we are still called to fight in this battle. And it's all around us. And what we do matters. And so God, I pray that you would challenge the hearts of men and women and young people here not to sit idly by, not to be part of the 80%, but to say, I'm going to step in. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to serve. God, open their eyes, give them opportunities to use the gifts you've given them for your sake and for your glory. God, we recognize all of this is outside of our own ability. It takes a supernatural work of your spirit to change our hearts, and so that's what we ask for now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.